All right, well, good morning, and welcome to, once again, to our study of worship and the doctrine of worship. Today we are in, I think, week 10 of talking about this subject, and just a little bit of review here. The last few weeks, kind of where we're at in this study of uh, biblical and reformed worship, is that last week we kind of began to narrow things down more specifically, and uh, we defined worship broadly a few weeks ago, and today, or excuse me, last week we kind of narrowed that down to kind of uh, provide a New Testament, New Covenant um, definition of worship in light of the Gospel. We talked about the internal and external aspect of worship, and we began to answer the question, is worship all of life, and what does that mean? So, just to recap and talk about a little bit of uh, where we came from, who can remind us our, our broad and then our more narrow definition of worship? What are we uh, kind of aiming for in that? What was our broad definition of worship? This is where you talk, not me. Say what? Ascribing Ascribing worth, which can be done to anything and anyone, right? Ascribe worth to our favorite football team. But more narrowly, defining gospel in relation to the New Testament, in light of the gospel, how do we kind of narrow that down more specifically? You remember? Obviously... More specifically, it's not just ascribing worth to anything, but it's ascribing worth to the one true God, right? We talked about how it's the result of the Spirit of God working in the heart. We talked about that it is a response to the work of God in the heart, that it's an ascribing glory and worth to God um, as He is revealed, so it's not just ascribing worth to the one true God, but uh, ascribing worth to Him in relation to how He's revealed Himself. It's in truth, right? That's where we kind of narrowed things down a little bit uh, to to provide a definition that we can work with, particularly as we look at uh, the, the doctrine of worship in this local church in relation to what we believe about the Scriptures. All right, so who can tell me what we talked about, remind us, when we talked about nature, the nature of worship, true worship, being both internal and external. Was it, what, what did I mean by that? Anybody remember? Yes, absolutely. It's an internal from the respect that it is an attitude of the heart. It is something that begins because of the work of Christ in us. Um, And it manifests itself in external worship. And we considered how you can't have one or the other. If you just have external but no internal, you're a hypocrite. You're going through the, the motions. You're a formalist in that sense. And And uh, we're going to consider that more today, but Jesus condemned very strongly uh, worship that was not 
um, that did not come from a heart dedicated to serving and loving the Lord. But also, if there's just internal, if you have the right attitude of the heart, but there's no, no external aspect, then can you really call that worship? Because the very definition of the word is that you are ascribing glory or a public honor uh, to the thing that you are worshiping. And so, true worship has both an internal and an external aspect. So that's kind of where we, where we kind of uh, left off last week. And we began to ask the question, is worship all of life? And in that sense, this is kind of where I want to go today. Um, I kind of jumped ahead a little bit too quickly last week and basically raised the question, is worship all of life? And I said, no, let's move on. Um, I want to I want to step back a little bit. I want to give a little bit more consideration to how true worship is indeed in some sense all of life. But also from that then go on to discuss the distinction between public versus private worship and why it's important, a distinction between secular and sacred and why it matters. And basically, I want to you know, answer some of the questions such as, why go to church if worship is all of life? Um, what, if anything, is special about corporate worship? So, again, I'm thinking about, what, in what sense is it true that worship is all of life? And if worship is all of life, what implications does that have? And can we speak of worship in the sense that it is all of life, but also in a more specific sense that it is public and corporate as well, that's kind of where, where I want to go. And this will lead into a discussion in the weeks ahead about what is appropriate in public worship and why or why not. Because you have to have that distinction, otherwise you can't even begin to have this question. Because if worship is all of life, then... There's nothing that's inappropriate in public worship. Everything can go. Everything that seems to work well or is agreeable to the people can be brought into the context of the local church and worship if worship is all of life. So that's kind of where I want to go. All right. Um, again, recap here. I do want to emphasize what we talked about last week. We've got to keep this in mind. True worship comes from the, a transformed heart. It is in spirit, right? It is the result of the uh, transformative work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. True worship is internal and external, as I said before. Um, and Old Testament types give way to New Testament realities. We, we, we want to keep this in mind as well. Remember, we had a specific temple in the Old Testament. We have very external. We had uh, lots of you know, musical instruments, and we had um, dancing before the ark, and we had all of, this, uh, all of these ceremonies and rituals and incense and water and sacrifices. And I do want to point out, we've got to keep in mind that these Old Testament types give way to New Testament realities. We don't worship under the types and shadows any longer. Jesus is the temple. There is no specific place 
that we must worship, like in Jerusalem, but we can worship anywhere. Jesus is the temple. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament realities. And the New Testament really emphasizes the spiritual aspect, the spiritual sacrifices, the spiritual holy of holies, the spiritual temple being the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the uh, emphasis of the New Testament. And so we want to keep that in mind. It's very central to pursuing this question is worship all of life. So, um, again, I'm kind of recapping what I've already been talking about, at least in these two bullet points. But can every activity in life properly be called worship? Is there a difference between public and private worship? Is more one more important or more foundational than the other. This is what is raised when we consider the fact that New Testament emphasis is on the spiritual nature of worship. So, in answering this question last week, these questions, the ones that I just raised, is every activity properly called worship, every activity in life, is there a difference between public and private worship? We did consider that uh, we are called to um, live before the face of God, quorum Deo, right? We are called to live and um, live in light of the reality that God is present, that God is with us, that God is watching. Everything that we do ought to be done in reality, in light of this reality. And everything we do ought to also be aimed for the glory of God. Whether we eat, whether we drink, we are to do all things for the glory of God. Again, this is considering this question, is worship all of life? And these are very clear teachings in Scripture. In some sense... Everything we do is related to the glory of God. And we also, kind of in answering this question, we talked about how private worship in this is very critical and important to our Christian walk. So these are kind of like um, the givens, right? Like we all agree on this. Every aspect of our lives, what we do in public, what we do in private, is to be lived before God, is to be done for the glory of God, and that in this respect, private worship, such as prayer, reading scripture, meditating on the word of God, singing, all of these things that we do in private are very, very important and critical to the Christian life. But I want to jump from here and give a little bit more now, because this is where I cut off last week. I said, all right, now let's talk about why worship is not all of life. But I want to, I really think, uh, in light of some of the questions I heard last week, I want to camp out here a little bit longer and really show how how the uh, scriptures emphasize this all of life aspect of worship. And that it's important that we don't overlook this. Uh, If you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 1. 
In fact, we're going to look at four passages here. Can I have four volunteers to look these up? Isaiah 1, Micah 6, Matthew 5, and James 1. If one of you will please read Isaiah 1, 10 through 17. Kim? All right, we'll bear with you, brother. Bear with the weaker brother. (laughs) All right. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fats of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my corpse? Bring no futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the callings of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. What we see here is that true worship of God is not showing up and worshiping God one day a week on Sunday and then living the rest of the week not caring about God. This is what Israel was doing. Notice the language, verse 13, vain offerings. That's an act of worship. God says they're in vain. And he talks about Um, these being an abomination to him. New moon, Sabbath, calling of convocations. This is in accordance with the Jewish calendar. What they were instructed, how and when they were instructed to worship. These are religious ceremonies. He says uh, of these, he cannot endure them. He cannot endure the solemn assembly, which is the gathering of corporate worship. He says he is weary of him. Why is he weary of this worship. Well, he says here, because, towards the end of this passage, it's because their hands are full of blood. It's because they're evil deeds. It's because um, they do not do good and bring justice and plead the widow's cause in the rest of their lives. Those are things that consider how we live. Seeking justice, correcting oppression, bringing justice to the fatherless, pleading the widow's cause. These are not aspects of corporate worship. These are aspects of our lives. And so God says to them, you come and worship me, but you live the rest of the week 
as lawless and disobedient. Therefore, I despise and I hate your worship. So in this sense, worship is connected to all of life. All right, Micah 6, 6 through 9. Who's got that? Thank you. Again, we see the very same thing. He talks about coming before God with burnt offerings, with thousands of rams, with rivers of oil. But what does God require, ultimately? Doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly before God. These are aspects of private conduct, all of life. The implication is that God is not pleased with, again, corporate, public worship, thousands of burnt offerings separated from an obedient life of worship. And so, in this sense, worship is connected in an integral part of all of life. All right, Matthew 5, 23, Sermon on the Mount. Well-known passage. Who's got that? Who can read it for us? Trent? So if you were offering your gift at the altar, and there, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Wow. Amazing. Our act of worship, which is giving is an act of worship, in the public assembly, which is, you know, what I try to emphasize here in our church. It's why we pass the offering. It's a gift. It's, a, it's an act within the corporate context of worship. But there's something that's more important even in that giving of, of, of uh, offering. And that is being reconciled to your brother when there is a sin, when there is conflict, when there is disagreement. So again, our worship is connected to, cannot be separated to, from what we do in the rest of life. And God says, you know what, I would rather you go be reconciled with your brother first before you come and give that offering. And finally, James 1, a uh, famous passage. Who's got that for us? 1, 26 through 27. In fact, I'll just go ahead and read that one since I haven't read one yet. James 1, 26 says, If anyone thinks he is religious, okay, that has to do with Worship, right? And does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. 
religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is recalling what we read in Isaiah. Using some of the same some some of the same same language there. And James is saying that to be truly religious is connected to how we handle um, ourselves and our speech and our conduct, and particularly our attitude towards the impoverished, the less fortunate. And so again, we see a connection between worship and our lives so that they cannot be separated so that in some important sense worship is all of life so i want to emphasize this because i don't want you to to hear me wrong when i then turn and make an argument for the importance and centrality of corporate worship as being quintessential worship as being the epitome of worship, as being more important than private worship, or more foundational than private worship. I don't want you to hear me wrong. Worship is all of life. And um, part of the way in which we worship God is by living rightly in all of life. Part of the way in which we worship God is by living rightly, obediently to His Word in all of life. And acts of worship, I'm thinking here in a corporate, public sense, ought to be the overflow of a godly life. They must be consistent with a godly life. And they are not pleasing or acceptable to God apart from a godly life. So there's a connection between all of life and worship and all of life. We are indeed, as we've considered many times, uh, to offer our lives as a living sacrifice. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Just think about that language. It's set apart from common use for holy, holy use. And it's a sacrifice. What, does, what happened to a sacrifice? It was burned up. It was consumed. When he says, offer your lives, your bodies as a living sacrifice, it's the end of you. Lord, I'm going to be burned up for your glory. This is for you to be uh, pleasing and acceptable to you. This is a giving up of one's entire self as an offering to God to be used for His purposes and His glory. And this concerns all of life. Any questions at this point before we now kind of turn the corner a little bit? Any comments? Absolutely, yeah. That was, of course, 
Israel's folly, focusing so much on the external. They neglected the internal, and it proved to be their undoing. These days, we get a lot of people that want to flip it and sort of say, oh, you know, I'm being a good person, and I enjoy seeing the beauty of nature. Yes. It's just okay. Which is why, which is why I'm going in the next direction. Exactly, yeah. And, and I guess so often we like to make things an either or. Oh, yeah. but you know, I'm kind to my neighbor, you yeah. know, I shoveled her walk for her, so I don't need to get mm-hmm. to church. Yeah. You know, which versus, oh, well, you know, I'm going to ignore my neighbor, so I make it to church. Yeah. And neither of those is, yeah. is a good place to be. Yeah. I'm sure we've all known people who've. Um, gone on one extreme or the other, obviously. Yeah. I think in some sense, my parents' generation, there was an overemphasis on you're in church every Sunday. You never miss Sunday school. Yeah. And it was a, a neglect of, of the internal, all of life aspect in many respects. It was a formalism. But now in this generation, like you said, it's really started to flip. It's this generation has responded to that right. from the previous generation. And I mean, I, I used to have a next door neighbor who never went to church. She would she would go out um, on a nature walk on Sunday mornings, and she would always come back saying, it, that's my church. Uh, I saw the lilies of the field. My dog was playing, and the joy, the sunshine, it brought, that, that's when I truly connected with God. And we also have those people nowadays who, you know, I can just go to church online. You know, I get all my teaching and preaching and instruction from online stuff, and um, I'm not really involved in a church. I might go occasionally, but I'm not really involved because it's all about just, you know, right. mental, academic, or instructional input. Um, and there's a neglect of what is truly worship, which is worship with the people of God. I'm finishing up a book, Javier Crow by Wendell Berry. And I'm reading it, it's a novel. I'm reading it because someone for some reason, surveyed the Covenant faculty about books they would recommend. This is the only book that showed up multiple times. It showed hmm. up a bunch of times on their list. Now, hmm. I, I have some real issues with it, to be honest. <laughs> so I, I, I'm not endorsing it. It's very well written. Yeah, yeah. It does some things well. But definitely the main character is uh, has no use for organized religion. Hmm. And I just read a passage where he says, oh, with all my contemplation, I've decided in my old age that Jesus didn't come to bring about organized religion. He came to bring unorganized religion. You know, this kind of oh man, you yeah. know, beauty of the river. Yeah. You know, be yeah. generous with your neighbor. You, yeah. you know, and it's it's just interesting to me that this is the book that the the one book that's hit multiple times. Interesting. All right, I'm going to have to get that after uh, get that recommendation after afterwards yeah. from you. <laughs> well, I mean, check it out. It's an interesting choice, being yeah. as he's very dismissive of organized religion. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is kind of off topic, but um, I mean, ultimately, you know, organized religion is messy, yeah. and it requires great sacrifice and great love. It's so much easier to just worship God in private, to worry about yourself. But it's yeah, exactly, yeah. It's kind of like marriage that way. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It's like if you just marry someone that wants a sinner, you know, the thing might work well. But it's selfish. It's self-seeking, and and it um, obviously it fails to do justice or pay attention to what the New Testament says in a very very clear sense. But we'll get into that. 
So this raises some questions. All right, I just made an argument that worship is all of life, right? Um, where am I at here? Ah, but this raises some questions. <coughs> questions I've raised like ten times already, but I'll repeat them again. Can we speak of everything we do in life as worship? Related to this, is everything then for a Christian sacred? And what, what have I tried to say every time I've brought that up? Well then, if everything is sacred, then nothing is sacred, right? If everything is worship, then nothing is worship. It fails to lose its distinctiveness. And of course, the question, why go to church at all? If worship is all of life, what, if anything, is special about corporate worship? does take a great sacrifice. It is very selfless. Well, what is special about it? Why is it important if everything in life is, particularly if we look at the Old Testament and what happened to Israel, there's so much emphasis on the internal, so much emphasis on the private so much emphasis on the all of life, then can we just dismiss corporate worship and focus on what really is important? So my argument here, turning the corner, is that not everything in life can properly be called worship. Yes, in some very real sense, everything comes from an attitude of worship. This is the internal, the subjective side of worship. In the sense that we live lives before the face of God. That we live things for His own glory. That inwardly, subjectively, everything we do, whether it's you know cleaning our house, or pursuing our schoolwork, or grading exams. If you indeed grade your own exams, Dr. Hunt. <laughs> everything comes from an attitude of worship. You do these things... In light of the glory of God. In light of the revelation of God given to us in His Word. In light of the, the aspect of that we want to please Him in what we do. But the flip side of this is that at calling everything worship, though, undermines the reality and necessity and the special nature of corporate worship. And it also nullifies... This secular versus sacred distinction. Again, by making everything sacred, by necessity, by definition, you have to make everything common. Nothing becomes sacred sacred if everything is sacred. So I want to talk about this a little bit more. This idea of um, sacred versus secular. What does sacred mean? What comes to your mind when I say that? Sacred. Holy. Set apart. Same thing, right? We talked about this on Wednesday night. Kim, you weren't there. But uh, I noticed, yeah. <laughs> All right, so is there an external aspect to sacredness then? I know we're, we are to internally be set apart, right? But is there an internal aspect of sacredness? Excuse me, an external aspect of sacredness. I was going to answer this one for you because I thought it would be a little above your level, Kim. So, 
I'm sorry. <laughs> I love you, brother. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Look at the knife out of your back. Sorry. <laughs> I'm going to argue that there is an, uh, still an external aspect to sacredness. Okay? In the sense that there is still things that we do that are to be set apart and holy. It's not just internal. And to kind of open this up, I've got the question for you. <laughs> is digging a ditch a sacred action? No great question mark. I'm sorry. <laughs> is digging a ditch a sacred action? What is uniquely Christian? Uniquely Christian. Think about it. Uniquely Christian about digging a ditch. There's no swearing involved. There's no swearing involved. <laughs> Very true. Very true. My wife is laughing. <clears throat> no comment. What? There's nothing uniquely Christian about digging. Are Christians better at digging a ditch in an external sense than a non-Christian? Is digging a ditch something that is uniquely done by God's people? If the ultimate reason for why we were redeemed, as we considered last week, two weeks ago, was so that we would worship, right, First Peter, that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who brought us from darkness into light, how does digging a ditch fulfill this purpose for why we were redeemed? Obviously, in a very general sense, you can dig a ditch to the glory of God, knowing that He's pleased with our labor, knowing that we do it for His glory, but in an external, specific, distinguishable sense. How does this fulfill the purpose for why we were uh, redeemed? What is uniquely Christian about it? Absolutely. Not digging a ditch, thankfully, is not an act of disobedience. (laughs) How does digging a ditch communicate the special revelation of God in the gospel? Special revelation. Now, think of this in relation to general revelation. Everybody knows that there is a God, right? Everybody knows that He is just. It's written on the law. Uh, excuse me, written on, uh, on the hearts of all mankind. It's called natural law. right? There, in some sense, we could say that digging a ditch in the image of God, doing it faithfully, doing it joyfully, doing it for God's glory, can, in some sense, bring glory to God. It can reveal God. But how can it reveal the gospel? The, special, excuse me, the gospel is special revelation. It doesn't come through nature. The revelation of the gospel isn't written on our hearts. We need an external word. We need that declaration, that, that, that um, uh, uh, herald 
to come to us and say, God in Christ has reconciled the world to Himself. That's why the ear being the instrument of salvation. That's why preaching of the Word is how God spreads the, the, the gospel message. That's why the person in deep, dark Africa, if they never hear the special revelation of the gospel in the Scriptures, they will never come to believe. Because they cannot look to nature and to natural law for the special revelation of the gospel. So how does digging a ditch proclaim the special revelation of God's word in the gospel? It doesn't. And how does digging a ditch um, lead to our spiritual growth and sanctification? Maybe in a general sense it could. Be meditating on scripture as we dig a ditch. <laughs> Better man than I am. <laughs> we could be joyfully worshiping God in a private sense while we dig a ditch, right? But has God attached his promises to this external action? Promised to strengthen our faith, to grow us in grace. No, he has not. That's why, as we've talked about a few times, hinted at already the means of grace. There's not just things that we see in Scripture, but there are things that come with the promise of God. God has chosen these things. You know, I had a, I had a, I had a friend one time, he's a pastor friend, um, tell me, I think I mentioned this to Nathan last week, that um, he didn't believe in the means of grace. He said, well, faith is the only means of grace. And I can have faith at any time through any way. He said, so oftentimes I can grow more as a Christian when I mow my grass, because I have an hour and a half to meditate on God by faith, than I can when I go to church. When I go to church, this is a pastor saying this. Now, I'm going to work for the next few weeks to deconstruct that, but... Off the top of my head, how I respond to him, I said, wow, in 1 Corinthians 14, the Apostle Paul, when they were abusing the Lord's table, says, this is the reason why many of you are sick, are weak, and have died. I said, if you mow your grass the wrong way, do you face a special judgment of God? (laughs) Of course, he couldn't have anything to say to that. But it highlights the fact that the Lord's Supper is sacred. It's God, Christ, saying to us, this is for you to strengthen our faith. And when we abuse that, God takes it very seriously because it is sacred. When you don't participate by faith, you invite the judgment of God in a special way because it is Sacred. Just going through the action, the motion, is a sacred thing. And God takes that very, very seriously. So I've got to wrap this up, and obviously I'm not going to finish. Um, but uh, Scripture does speak of things that are set apart, holy, or consecrated to the Lord. We talked about it already in our bodies. Sanctification. It's one aspect of our, of, the, of our redemption, our Christian life, is that our bodies are set apart. 
But as I just mentioned, also there is the Lord's Supper as well. It's, it's a supper in some sense like any other supper in the world. All suppers common, right? But it's not a common supper. It's a special supper. It's holy. It's set apart. It's consecrated to the Lord. In that sense, it gives special grace and invites special judgment when it's abused. So it's something that is sacred. Let's say the same thing about the Lord's day. It's a day just like every other day. The sun comes up, right? We get out of bed. We have our coffee. Um, you know, it starts. It's, it's in some sense in a very, if, you know, just looking at it in an external sense. It's just like every other day. But it's also a special day, a holy day. It is the Lord's day, John says in Revelation one. Right? It's the day in which the early church gathered. It's the day in which we recall Christ's resurrection. It's the day when the Apostle Paul says, Come together and bring your gifts in 1 Corinthians 16.1. It is a day just like every other day, but it's also but it's a special, unique, and set-apart day as well. It's holy. And in this sense, the Old Testament usage of Set apart, holy, consecrated, are often employed in a similar sense in the New Testament. You have this language of sacred assembly, holy convocation, the temple of God. Yes, it, 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 it's, it's in a spiritual sense. Um, it's more, emphasis is on spiritual rather than the external. But my argument here is that there are things that are still sacred, external things that are still sacred, that are, that are distinct from all of life and that are to be handed over, in that sense, given to the Lord as set apart. So that's where i got to stop. Um, <clears throat> yeah, we'll pick up right here this week, uh, next week and uh, talk about this in more detail, kind of wrap this up and uh, turn towards more specific application of this. Um, But I hope you see that uh, this sacred distinction, particular things that come with the blessing of God and are to be set apart from God, uh, is a very important aspect in understanding the doctrine of worship and uh, what we are called to do and how we are called to live in light of those realities. Any questions? Let's, uh, Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, as we contemplate these things, uh, we are, uh, in some sense, um, overwhelmed, Lord, at the magnitude of your grace, uh, your mercy in revealing yourself in your word, Father, your goodness towards us, and how you haven't left us to ourselves, but you have given us instruction, and you have given us promises for how we might navigate the difficulties of this life and how our faith might be strengthened to persevere faithfully until the end. Well, we do pray that you would, again, that you would give us insight and understanding, that we would listen to your word, not to the teachings of men, not to tradition, not to even the inclinations of our fallen hearts. Lord, that your word would transform us, that it would sanctify us, and that it would lead us into truth by your Spirit. Be with us now, 
as we turn towards this sacred assembly of worship of your great name on your holy day. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.